anything different? Oh, well, well, I'll just speak loudly just in case. But for all of you online tonight, all of you in here tonight, in case you forgot, my name is Mr. Trav, director of the Calvary Baptist Church Awana program, and it has been one long and enjoyable year. God has been very good this year. Amen? Amen. So, for those of you who don't know, I've been spending the last year and a half pursuing an associate's degree in political science. What am I going to do with that exactly? I don't really know, but I thought this is a good opportunity to get some general education out of the way before I transferred to a four-year university to pursue biblical studies. My long-term goal is to probably either be a Bible teacher, a youth pastor, or sort of advance the Awana ministry a bit. But one thing that the Lord has laid on my heart this year was the verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which says, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And in more modern definitions, the word charity can be translated as love. So when you hear charity, it could sort of mean like a display of one's love. So the greatest example of charity would be, of course, Christ. So forgive me if it's been a while since I've been up here, but it's, it's been a, a very long year full of work and school, but it's great to be back up here to open the Word of God this evening. But before I do, let's have a word of prayer. Father. Thank you for this night you've given to us in this great year that you've provided with so many blessings and so many people to come into our church and learn more about you. We pray, Father, that more will come, that more will continue to have that desire to learn more about you and to especially share the word with those around them, that many more can come to know you by more than just this ministry, but through all people who are influenced and impacted by this ministry. Let us all, one another, be missionaries, and let everywhere be a mission field, and let us have the courage to share your word to those who have never heard about you, but still have the heart to want to hear your word and to learn more about you and to have their eyes enlightened. And even for those who don't have a desire, please soften their hearts that they may see what you have done for them what you continue to do for us. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, the passage this evening I'm going to ask you to turn to is the book of Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to read verses 31 through 46. The title for this evening's message is The Least of These. We're going to wrap our minds around this phrase, and we're going to look at what Scripture means by the least of these. So before we do, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'm going to read verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, do any of you know what point in time this is actually referring to? Now, most skeptics would think that maybe it takes place at the end of time where Christ will judge on the big white throne, the great white throne, the enormous white throne. But 
It does not refer to that. There are others who think maybe it's the rapture, you know, when they all of God's elect are brought forth and everybody is judged in heaven, but it's not quite referring to that either. What it is referring to is the second advent, which in nowadays language refers to the second coming. So this is the point after the tribulation where God separates the righteous from the wicked from all those who remain on the earth. So, what does the Bible have to say about the rapture exactly? Well, I'm going to take you on a little rabbit trail to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll just read verses 15 through 17. It says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, think if you will. The rapture, for one, is imminent, which means there's no other biblical prophecy that needs to be fulfilled in order for it to happen. All those prophecies have already been fulfilled, which means it could happen any time from now. It could happen within the next minute. If, if the Lord wants, he can make it happen in another 3,000 years. Heaven forbid. You know, I kind of like to see him come back in my lifetime. Preferably maybe when I'm at an older age and was thinking, ah, life's getting kind of hard now, but I've lived a good life. But... Whatever the Lord decides, we're thankful for. Amen? So, his timing is always, always perfect. But what does Scripture have to say about the second coming? And in in opposed to the rapture, where God brings his elect up into heaven and uh, judges, the righteous, judges the righteous there on the judgment seat of Christ, the second coming is talked about in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. So I'll just briefly read verses 11 through 15. It says, and this is John speaking, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon a white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now the Word of God, and John's teachings, we recognized to be Jesus Christ himself. So this is Jesus coming in through the clouds after the seven-year tribulation is over and seizes the nations and establishes his millennial kingdom. So the second advent is when our Lord returns to establish his millennial kingdom. It is not to be confused with the judgment of saints on the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne of judgment. 
This is to take place after the Great Tribulation and before the Millennium. The Great White Throne Judgment takes place after the Millennium on Earth, and Judgment of Saints takes place in Heaven before the Second Advent occurs. So, this is... Uh, This is a piece of information that's widely acknowledged by um, scholars of the Bible. So, we see in Scripture that when God takes up the elect into heaven, immediately the seven-year tribulation begins. And throughout that tribulation, all of those who have not accepted Christ remain on earth and are left in turmoil by all the powers of nature turning against them. So we see times unlike anything the world has ever seen before, and it is promised that it will be times in which it will never see again. But after the tribulation occurs, we see God establishing not the eternal kingdom just yet, but his millennial kingdom. So. When God takes up the elect, <clears throat> the judgment seat of Christ is, is going to be portrayed during this time. It's believed that the marriage supper of the Lamb and the judgment of saints will occur during, sometime during this time, the, the Great Tribulation. When God will judge the saints, the books will be open, and they will see if their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which it is, obviously. And also, the other books, which show what they've done for Christ, what kind of life they left on earth to set a Christian lifestyle. And when God says, well done, you good and faithful servant, well, that goes to show that they've lived a, a life that portrayed the example that Christ left for us. So that would gain us riches and glory but for those who have not set a Christian lifestyle, but yet their names were still found in the Book of Life, all those riches will be burned. And they will not have as much glory as the remaining saints. But once God establishes his millennial kingdom, or rather begins to do so, the judgment here is not a final judgment. It is a judgment that's preparing to establish the kingdom of righteousness and peace for which scriptures speak of. So we have to remember that the millennial kingdom is a kingdom made up of mortals. So all the saints will come to earth and they will inhabit it, but those who still remain, they will be judged by what kind of life they set during the seven years of tribulation. So, when the saints are judged, they're not given new bodies, but enter the millennium in their natural bodies. In keeping with the millennial predictions of Scripture, which describe the saints as bearing children, building houses, and otherwise having a natural life. This is portrayed in Isaiah chapter 65, but uh, get back to the context here. Let's talk about the sheep and the goats that we see in verses 32 through 33 of Matthew chapter 25. 
So if you'd like to follow along, it reads, And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. So as we see in normal Hebrew poetry, we have here no varying degrees of light or shade, but rather the picture that is painted here is sharply divine by black and white here. So, vice versa. All men fall into one or two of each class. So, either the first class or the second class. There's only two classes here. The, the evil and wicked or the good and righteous. And they are clearly distinguishable as sheep and goats are to a shepherd. So, kind of a silly analogy if you think about it, but back in the Old Testament, you know, when you see sheep, you kind of want to keep the sheep, right? I mean, goats. I've never been a very big fan of goats. Some people love them, but sheeps, you know, to me, they seem a lot more, I don't know, kind of gentle creatures, unenthusiastic, easier to catch. But I guess shepherds like goats. If they were goat herds, they'd be called goat herds as opposed to shepherds. But I don't know what you call herders of goats, but uh, this is how God portrays the, the wicked and the righteous, as divine sheep from goats. This is a poetic description of the way in which the prophecy of Jesus will be fulfilled for all those who survive the Great Tribulation. So I put two more references down here because this talks about the judgment seat and it talks about the great white throne. So, I'll just read them for you. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So, this is talking about the judgment seat. Remember, this takes place before the second advent. And now, Revelation 20.11 and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So, the judgment seat is for saints, specifically. And the great white throne is for the wicked and the sinful. And that takes place after the millennium. We'll, we'll cover that later, in just a little bit. But, let's talk about the sheep. Verses 34 to 36 says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Remember, these are the nations that have survived the tribulation. This is not the saints of the Old Testament or the final judgment of the wicked. This is just those who remain on earth. So, Then shall the king say upon them, unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye have me meat, ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. So, imagine yourself there. You're, you just survived the seven years, and you have... God Almighty 
saying all this of you, that you gave him drink, you gave him clothes, you have given company, you gave him all these luxuries that most people of a lesser lifestyle wouldn't really receive from most humanity. And you're like, gee, I don't remember doing that to you. I mean, if I, if I did, I, I most certainly would remember it. Someone of your power, of your glory, of course I would help you. You know, people like us, you know. People are likely to help people of power more than people of poverty. You, you notice that nowadays? Just how often people look to please people in power as opposed to people in poverty. Why? Because they like to please people of higher power. Because they know what they can do. They know the effects that they have on society. They can turn anything to the favor of anybody they so choose. If they choose to please people of power, they're likely to get a positive outcome from the person in power. And maybe a little money from the person who's wealthy. But in this case, we see these people not remembering anything they did for to Christ himself. So they ask him, in verses 37 to 39, it says, Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? So the sheep are obviously surprised to find out the nature of their acts. They want to know, when did we ever do this? When did we ever treat the creator of all the universe like this? That's when we look at verse 40. What does verse 40 have to say? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So this is where we first see the least of these. Who are the least of these. So, when you look around you in society, you see people of poverty, people of a lower lifestyle, people who've never heard the scriptures. Would you consider these as a best comparison to the least of these? People who are in need, people who are in want, people who lack sustenance, People who don't have the same luxuries you do. If we overlook the least of these, we do not set the same example as Christ set when he was on earth. When Christ pursued his, mis his missions on earth, he didn't come in a golden chariot. He didn't come to establish a kingdom. He didn't live in a great palace. He didn't only choose the politicians or the wealthy to socialize with. He lived in the wilderness. He fed on anything the wilderness brought him. His followers were the poor and needy people. He didn't spend too much time in cities, in the, in the cities unless it came to synagogues, where he would teach the wisdom to the wisest of people. 
But the people he most looked to was those who were needy because he knew that they needed him most of all. Because we see how Christ portrays himself as a servant. How the best way you can live is a life of servitude. Not just to Christ, but toward others. Our actions portray what our faith really is like to God Almighty. That's what shows that it is genuine. When we show our respect, our urgent love and care toward the least of these, that is how Christ sees us. Because remember, as Pastor was talking about this morning, nothing is blind in his eyes. He sees all, our minds, our hearts, and all the deeds of mankind. Whatever we do for the least of these is what God sees of us. So, because the acts of the righteous were the natural outcome of their character, they were able to inherit eternal riches and glory. So now we look at the goats. What does God have to say about the goats, or those who sit on his left hand? Verses 41 through 43 says, Then shall he say also unto them on his left hand, Depart from me, ye accursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. And the unrighteous are looking at him saying, When did we do that? We would never do that to God Almighty. Hence, verse 44 says, Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? The goats were obviously astonished to learn the nature of their acts. But, verse 45 says once again, aloud, it says, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as he did it not to one of the least of these, he did it not to me. So this is for the group of people who lived a life completely ignoring the least of these. The least of these being the most in need. We see in, in Scripture other areas where Jesus talked about the poor old man at the side of a table and the rich man. And the poor man would eat crumbs from off his table and the rich man would live in complete wealth, you know, high on the hog. But the poor man just begged all his life. The rich man, he had no need for bed. He had a nice grave, you know, but the poor man, you know, he didn't have much of a grief, sadly. But it didn't matter. Because in the end, they both got what they deserved. The, the rich man, him completely overlooking the poor man, or the least of these. 
suffered eternal damnation. The, the beggar who is in want and who believed that the Christ would come, he had eternal riches and glory. Because we see that both classes have done what was just natural to them. And they were judged according to their acts because the acts were the natural outcome of their character. You know, throughout this last year of Awana, I stressed a lot on character. I try to get the kids to build up character. And not just one specific, bless you, one specific character, but all sorts of characters. We look at respect, integrity. We're teaching them to expand their horizons, to Try learning one character first and then another because God admires biblical stewardship and godly character. Sort of being cheerful givers, per se. So, Christ in a believer makes a new character. And from that character will naturally flow actions in keeping with that commitment. That is why it is so critical to have young people learn about these characters, and not just reserved for them, but also people our age alike. To be received of the great judge demands character. The best character that we can set is Christ-likeness. And everything, such as integrity, service, respect and honor, this all points to Christ-likeness. It's answering the question, what would Jesus do? Would he overlook the heavy-hearted? Would he overlook the sorrowful? Would he just pass by those who are the least of these? Or would he minister unto them? Would he encourage them? Would he leave them with a smile on their face? Now that we know or have a general idea of what Christ would do, or rather we should, what would you do? Would you do as Christ would do? Or would you do as what seems most convenient for you? So, sadly, in the end, we see that those who are wicked, those who are already damned, Go away into everlasting punishment. However, the righteous shall go into life eternal. Thus begins the millennial kingdom, where we see that the beast and the false prophet are the first to get cast in the lake of fire. Satan, however, gets locked away in a dungeon called the bombless pit and put a seal over it that he should not be released until a thousand years have expired. And that's when everybody, all the righteous, all the saints that have already been judged, stay and establish the millennial kingdom. And after that expires, then the great white throne judgment begins. After Satan is released and he corrupts all the nations and all war breaks out against Gog and Magog, and God utterly defeats them. And this is the final judgment of all the wicked. All hell is delivered up, all the bodies with them that have been on earth through all the ages, every 
soul of every individual who has not accepted Christ is now present at this moment. Everybody who has been corrupted by their own thoughts, their own desires, they are all here at this time. And now, the great white throne judgment begins. And the books are open, and if their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which is not, um, they are judged, as Pastor was saying this morning, according to their character. So, in theory, hell might be hotter for others than um, the rest of the others. And that's when Satan will be cast in a lake of fire, along with all the wicked and the sorcerers and the warmongers and all liars and all the wicked. And that also is when all the saints and all the righteous who have been judged will be brought forth into a new heaven and a new earth where Jerusalem will be its capital and where Jesus Almighty will rule on the throne on the right hand of the Almighty, and there will we ever be with the Lord. That should be an encouragement to us. Looking forward to that day, not only when Christ establishes his millennial kingdom, but also the day when the last battle is fought and all evil is put away with. Because it is then that God will wipe away all tears. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. So, Satan's doom and the doom of the lost is imminent, sadly. But we must remember that God is not blind. He sees the desires of our hearts. He sees whether we're truly saved or not. And it's these things that we must consider, not just for ourselves, but for all humanity around us. You know... How many of you have heard or remember the phrase or the question, if there is a God in heaven and if hell is a real place, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them? Any of you heard that? Any of you remember that? That was asked by an atheist who didn't believe in God. But he asked, if hell is a real place, and God is a real person, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them? Because you're literally dooming them. You're throwing away what might be their only chance of redemption, their only shot at hearing the word of God. We never know. We could be all that they've got. Would we be willing to accept their fate and just be content with the fact that only we are going to heaven? If it were up to me, I'd say that I'd be of all people most miserable if I just reserved salvation only for myself. It's Christ himself. He died setting an example for all humanity to see That he was king of kings and lord of lords. That he was the only mediator between God and men. Not idols, not Mary. Nobody goes to the Father but through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So, let's talk about 
the least of these. How does this apply to all of us? Well, most of us could probably not consider ourselves the least of these. And for those of us who do, you know, probably are lacking in areas more than others, you know, because we all have our lacks. But, I mean, some people would like to live in mansions. I, I imagine most people would like to live in a mansion. I, I, I'm certainly be content with that. But, <clears throat> what about those who are less than you? Another thing that Pastor was saying this morning is that it can always be worse. You know, just think of how worse it could be. The lowest form of human life you could possibly think of. Yes, it is very much possible it can be that. I mean, we look at Job, his life. What did he suffer? He didn't suffer death, but he lost everything. And on top of all that, he had his body smoten with boils from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. He was in pain every time he moved. I mean, literally, nothing worse could happen to him. I mean, Jesus kind of topped him because he actually died. And what made it worse is that he was innocent. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He made himself the least of these. And by doing so, he redeemed them. All scripture encourages us, even the book of Proverbs, to honor, respect, and meet the needs of the least of these. Jesus said that a new commandment I bring before you, that ye love one another just as I have loved you. Not just the rich, not just the wealthy, not just for your own personal gain, but merely to bring pleasure to those around you, to honor them, to respect them, to set an example that Christ would set. There was a point last week where a person on the side of the road was waving at me. I didn't know what to think. I just pulled over. And then he came up asking me, I am new here and I have no gas. I just need a little money to pay for gas. Now, sadly these days, it's hard to distinguish between those who are lying to buy stuff that doesn't please the Lord, to spoil themselves with their wicked deeds and anything that brings them pleasure. Or, on the other hand, you could get those people who are actually genuinely telling the truth, that they really aren't one. You know... Sometimes it's hard for me to distinguish between those kind of people, but when it comes to those moments, I just have to ask myself, what would Jesus do? You know, whether it's driving them to the gas station to fill up their tank for them, sharing with them a little about the Word of God, or doing anything to bring a smile on their face, anything that helps. How many of you have heard the quote, in every encounter you either give life or you drain it? Anybody hear that before? That's something that I typically like to tell my students. So, when you see somebody sad or distressed, and you go up to them, 
and you say a few encouraging words, just a few words could brighten their day. It's people who are the least of these, people who need encouragement, even if it's not some sustenance or some financial need that you need to meet, even if it's just a few words, a few words of encouragement to brighten their day, something like that can make a whole world of difference. So when we see the least of these, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Because if you know Jesus, if you're in your devotions and you're aware of the kind of example that Jesus set, then you'd be aware of just what Jesus would do. And if you do the opposite, then that's on you. Because there's no other excuse besides this <clears throat> going by your own self-judgment. Our judgment should always, always coincide with the thinking of Christ.